like just for a wee while this evening to turn back to Genesis. I said last, two weeks ago, that that was going to be our last study, but uh, it made sense to finish off this section uh, before turning to something new. And uh, we read, Katie read for us this evening Genesis 3 from verse 9 and uh, through to verse 24, and I hope that at uh, uh, impact uh, we'll maybe do a little more in discussion uh, about this passage this evening. But it's a really awesome and uh, relevant and challenging section uh, of the Bible. Uh, it gets to the very root of our problem, very root of our need. It's that black box that I spoke about before. You know, when an airplane crashes, the black box tries to ex- explain what went wrong. Well, this is really God's black box for us. It's explaining what's gone wrong. And uh, it's reminding us of our need and uh, why Jesus needed to come, really, is uh, what it all speaks about. And it's hugely depressing. Hugely depressing passage in many ways. Uh, When we unpack it a little bit, it speaks of the misery of the choices that our first father and mother made, uh, the misery of that and the mindless rebellion that uh, brought them such judgment and brought such turmoil to this world, which, you know, we can just look around us in the world today and we can see it. And you can look into your relationships and into your families and you can look into uh, the difficulties sometimes in lives and look into the problems and the wars and the struggles and uh, you can sit at the bedside of a dying neighbor and friend or relative and you can know and see and appreciate this is what's going wrong. This is what has happened. This is why Jesus has come. This is our Adam's reality as the head of humanity is ours also. It's not really a theoretical study of beginnings. It it is an explanation of where we are in our relationship with God and, and why Jesus comes to change that and give us great hope in a future. And uh, we look at this, I look at this with you as a dying man uh, to dying people. Uh, although as Christians, uh, the sting of the death uh, has been removed and uh, we rejoice and give thanks uh, to God in that. But we, we look briefly at this passage and one of the really saddest statements in the whole Bible is in verse 9, is it not, of chapter 3? But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Or maybe even from before that, you know, Lord God, as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden, but the Lord God called the man, where are you? It's It's a really sad question, and it's a really bleak question. And... uh, it's not that God didn't know. It's not that God's. Uh, it's not like hide and seek, and that God didn't know where they'd gone, couldn't find them. He knew exactly where they were. Uh, it's not that he's in the dark, but he's he is really opening dialogue with them. They've been in a position, and he knows this. He already understands this, and he sees this that they have they've rebelled against him. They've turned their back on him, and this is his first act of grace, as it were, with them where he asks the question, he, he starts the relationship going again, where are you? 
He's beginning to open up dialogue and give them the opportunity to repent. And isn't that the way of God? Isn't that always the way of God? Isn't that the way it has to be in our own relationships? You've fallen out with your wife, your husband, your friend, your neighbor, your colleague, your flatmate. Someone's got to make the first move. Someone's got to make that first act of grace in coming back and opening dialogue. And here we have God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and he asks the question. He gives them the opportunity to answer and to be in uh, conversation with him again. But they're not... It's different. Everything has changed in that relationship with him, uh, with God. But it's just perfect, good, uh, glorious, beautiful, free, lifelong, um, blissful relationship has been completely broken. And for the first time, there's this great sense of shame in that relationship. I hid. Heard you were in the garden. I was afraid. I was naked. And I hid. It's a place of shame there was never shame but they didn't even know and it's difficult for us I think to understand that whole concept of nakedness because we come from a different position uh, into that whole situation than they did but they didn't even know previously that they were naked and yet all of a sudden there's this knowledge of them being uncovered and I guess that has all the kind of implications of, of being uh, they've got something to cover they're afraid of not, not physically but even spiritually and, and in their relationship with God and I'm, I'm not quite sure what the physicality and, and all that the nakedness necessarily has to do exactly with that but there's that whole immediate recognition of, of the, the complexity of, 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 of shame and the lust of their physicality and their sexuality is becoming a threat and uh, the innocence is gone whatever that means in, in real terms from the innocence had gone and there was a, a shame in the relationship and a relationship before God they felt they couldn't stand before him they had to be hidden from him and they couldn't bear their humanity before him because of who he was. And uh, more than ju just shame, there was a fear. It was, again, difficult for us to comprehend, but in a, in a world where there had been no fear, here is for the first time a new emotion in the relationship with God that they'd never encountered before, one of guilt and one of fear. And they recognized God's place and they recognized that he had been right in what he had said and they recognized that they had rebelled against that in a huge and in a horrible way. And they uh, knew that the relationship before his holiness had been broken and his justice needed to be uh, enacted in the world and that the love and open relationship had been broken. They were afraid They'd usurped God. They'd wanted his position. They'd wanted independence. And uh, they got their dubious freedom. And it wasn't really much freedom at all, was it? And so there's fear in uh, their relationship uh, with him. And often in our lives, God's asking the same question. Well, where are you? Where are you? You know, sometimes he's asking it because we've just been quiet. We haven't spoken to him for months and maybe he's coming in even through this word, through this message, through uh, church tonight and he say, well, where are you? Maybe you're a Christian and he's saying, I haven't heard you. Where are you? You haven't spoken to me. This relationship that's been renewed through Jesus Christ and you're refusing that. Where are you? I can't see you. I don't know you. Where are you spiritually? And maybe you're not a Christian and you're afraid of that question. You're afraid of uh, God's gaze. You're afraid of his light shining into the darkness. 
of your heart. You're afraid of uh, his holiness or his justice. And uh, it's an irrational fear because this is a question of grace. It's a question where he's asking us to come and asking us to come and dialogue with him. Though our sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. He wants us to speak with him and uh, to uh, uh, deal with him. That's what Christ is all about. That's what the gospel's all about. That's what the Bible, that's what Genesis is all about. That's what Genesis to Revelation is all about. It's all about building and knowing a relationship with God that's been broken because of our sin. A relationship that is significant and vital and important and goes on into eternity. So we have God's question and then we have the kind of interesting and very typical ritual of blame. And it's one that we're all good at. And uh, it hasn't changed really uh, over the centuries this great ritual of blame you know Uh, who told you that you were naked have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you then the man said oh it's a woman's fault the woman and it's your fault God it's not just a woman's fault but you gave me her so it's your fault as well so there's this great abandoning of of a sense of his own responsibility and he blames the woman and uh, he blames Eve and then he blames uh, kind of by extension, he blames God because God is the one who gave uh, Eve to him as a gift. And uh, so we have this sense in which uh, we shift blame from ourselves and we, we, we blame the person next to us and ultimately we're quite happy to blame God for all the problems that we face in the world. And of course the woman does much the same. She said, well, it wasn't me. It wasn't my fault. It was a serpent. It was a serpent. He deceived me and I ate. So there's this great sense of, of uh, uh, shifting blame onto uh, others. We can be as guilty as hell itself with our own free will, with our own decisions, with our own choices. But isn't that so true in our lives and in our relationships and in our thinking? So often when it comes to uh, guilt and mistakes and failure that we are slow to recognize our own responsibility. And we will argue strong, we'll argue in relationship but we'll also argue with God it's not my fault it's not my fault God it's your fault you're the one who's given me the genes that I have it's my upbringing it's the society that we're a part of it's the government it's the church it's the minister it's everybody else and yet the reality for us is that we're the rebels and until we come to the place where we like you know isn't that what probably David was doing for long enough um, when he committed that great and public sin which poor David has been known right through centuries where he was silent before God and he wouldn't confess what he'd done wrong and he probably was justifying what he did or blaming other people or thinking there was reason for it until he got to that place where in Psalm 51 he could say against you, you only have I sinned and will we stop blaming everybody else? And that's a significant reality potentially in our own lives. That we stop blaming other people for all the wrong that is going on. And that we recognize the importance before God of taking responsibility and of confessing to Him ultimately that while we hurt and offend and bruise the lives of others, it is God who is the ultimate judge and God is the one against whom we sin and God is the one that we come to for forgiveness and for hope and then we have this irrevocable judgment in verses 16 uh, to the end of the chapter to uh, 
verse 19 where he speaks about uh, the judgment uh, of God and it's a terrible judgment really uh, upon the people it's not a curse uh, in our understanding some kind of voodoo curse Um, it's a judgment it's a declaration of judgment he uh, judges the serpent and he judges Eve and he judges Adam as the representative head of mankind Satan is judged in this uh, strange way it's kind of like the serpent is uh, is judged I'm not quite sure what all it means in terms of uh, the animal itself uh, taking on this form of of being judged Uh, but we know that um, Satan himself at this point is is judged to be out of of God's grace and out of God's kingdom and without any hope because he will ultimately be crushed uh, by the seed of the woman and uh, there's this declaration that until he is crushed there will always be a battle between humanity and between spiritual powers of darkness uh, with God uh, involved and there's this also important um, it's kind of dis- described as the pre-gospel message of uh, Genesis 3 I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers he will crush your head you will strike his heel it's just the first glimpse of Jesus that the seed of the woman someone from Eve's seed someone from the, uh, the, the genealogy of Eve going right through eventually uh, this will be Jesus who will come and he will crush Satan's head. And isn't that interesting because it begins to put the whole picture of the Old Testament in place uh, the way God protects the seed or the, the offspring of Eve right through whether it's through Esther or whether it's in the judges or whether it's uh, in the prophets they're protected so that eventually uh, Jesus is born. And even at that point uh, Herod wants to kill him and uh, they try and destroy him but he comes through and becomes the one uh, even into the point that we're looking at this morning of the temptation in the desert where Satan wants to destroy the seed of the woman in in order that he himself will not be crushed so we have the beginnings here even it's called the protengelium the beginnings of the gospel the first good news bad for Satan good for us but there's also this kind of judgment uh, specifically on on the, the, the woman uh, and also specifically on the man and the, the judgment is, is uh, f- kind of fits uh, their, their role that they've been given and, and affects the role that they've been given and speaks about the, what we sense and what we know and what we experience in, uh, in the reality of life and the life without Jesus Christ kind of in the context, particularly the woman, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing, your pain will give birth to your children, your desire will be your husband, he will rule over you. So it's in this context of her being a mother and a wife, uh, there's the, there is wider implications for it. But in relationships, even in the beauty of birth, uh, there will be for her the reminder in new life, even new life will be the reminder of pain uh, and the reminder of rebellion that will be passed on generally, generationally uh, through childbirth and this recognition that even that isn't as it ought to be. Something's wrong. Something isn't right even in that. And a distortion. Now, that probably this has been one of the most 
written about verses in the whole Bible, your desire will be for your husband, he will rule over you. Very little is known about it. Ultimately, exactly what it, what exactly is meant within that. But it does, what it does seem to speak about specifically is that, that there will be the beginnings of tensions within relationship and uh, a breaking of the roles that God had originally given to, to men and women within marriage. And these roles will be challenged and abused. It's kind of the beginning of the battle of the sexes in many ways. And uh, there'll be uh, just tension and exploitation and men will exploit and subjugate and uh, abuse women and uh, there'll be illicit desires and there'll be false, all kind of things going on. It's just talking about the kind of maelstrom of struggles that uh, have entered into the reality of humanity and into relationships, the closest of relationships in that, that building block of society. And for the man, again, the judgment is is spoken of in terms of his own role as the, the, the kind of the one who is to work the ground and is to have the responsibility uh, for that and that there would be a great, great struggle for him, great toil. It's the same, actually, same word that's used, the toil he will have is the struggle in, in childbirth. And the, again, it's the kind of introduction of blood, sweat, and tears into our work life, into our um, ambitions, into our careers, into all that God has given us. Uh, has, and it's become a battlefield where it was meant to be very different. In other words, he's saying everything's turned upside down. The world isn't as it was meant to be. And that is part of God withdrawing in judgment. Withdrawing in judgment because of this great... He's basically saying this is what happens. You have that knowledge of good and evil. You've chosen independence. I will withdraw in judgment. And of course, the worst reality of it all is that from dust you are and to dust you will return. That's the ultimate conclusion. Is that they were both driven from the garden in that relationship of life with Jesus, with God, but also uh, they lost uh, the uh, the life, the fullness of life that was theirs, and they were sentenced to to die. And Satan was right. It, their physical death didn't happen immediately, but there was this immediate spiritual separation and the introduction of decay and destruction and ultimately for all of us death and that's a dreadful thing isn't it ah these young people I know you don't think about death very much most young people maybe don't they think they're going to live forever I used to think that I'm ancient now so I don't think that anymore I wake up in the morning and I just thank God that I've got another day and I thank God that I've had as many days as I've had but we recognize that life is hugely hugely short and uh, that that isn't what it was meant to be. With all the decay and the aging and the weakening and the vulnerabilities that go with it. And we recognize something far, far deeper, far bigger. And sometimes the puny way that we think about spirituality and we think about God and we think about him in the context of our own life. It's absolutely fundamental for us that we consider both the reality of the problem and also uh, the wonder of Jesus Christ. And I just want to finish just with uh, the hope that even in the midst of this bleakest and darkest of days that there was in the whole of humanity, that there is tremendous... It's dripping in many ways with grace 
God's justice is clearly there. His judgment is solemn and horrific and beyond our understanding as as failed and fallen sinners. And yet we smell it and see it and sense it all around us and even in our own lives. And yet at the same time, there's great grace. Even in the the promise of the coming Savior who will put things right. Because basically, you know what he says in that? It's quite interesting what he's saying in that. He's saying, you chose to try and become like me and you couldn't do it. See, that's what they wanted. They wanted to become like God's. Remember that? That's what, you, you too can become like God, knowing good and evil. And that was, the, that was the temptation. That was the promise that they could become like God. And he says, you can't ever become like God because I've created you. You're mortal. You're not infinite, eternal. You're not God. So you can't become like me. But he says, I, I am going to become like you. I am going to become human. I am going to become a human being in order to be your redeemer and savior. So that we couldn't become like God's. But he, in order to put things right again, he becomes like us. The seed of the woman. He becomes a savior of flesh and blood. A Savior like us, yet without sin. That is an astonishing reality. We couldn't become like God. But God goes to that. Uh, you know, Philippians speaks of him pouring out himself, uh, emptying himself, you know, equality with God, something that he didn't need to grasp, but it was, was his. And he emptied himself of that in order to be a redeemer. If we could only grasp what it must have been like for Jesus to be in the womb of Mary, and to live for 30 years and to be rejected. This God to to experience all that because he loved us. Astonishing. But even in that promise, but we also have the fact that life for Adam and Eve goes on. He doesn't just bring it to an end there and then he could have just said, well, that's it. The experiment's over. Humanity's a waste of time. Uh, It's no use. Judge them all. Banish them. Finish it. But no, life goes on. They continue to live. They continue to have family. They continue to be together. And interestingly, I think Adam knows that. He doesn't uh, name Eve something else. He doesn't name her the, uh, the mother of all dying. He names her the mother of all living. Because he has this hope and this understanding that God isn't finishing it all that there will be life, there will be a future for them, and that there is hope. Does Adam see that? Does he see that even in the promise? Does he see it in, in the hope, in the voice of God, in the gentleness of that voice, in the forgiveness of that voice? Does he hear it? But we know that God is graceful in what he's doing. And there's also the provision of clothes. God provides them with clothes, doesn't he? He covers them up. Provides them uh, with clothing. Again, there's probably a lot of theological realities underneath all of this. People talk about it being the uh, animal clothing that they're given, animal skins. Speaking of the first sacrifice for sin that is made, and there's an atonement made for them. I'm not sure if that's uh, reading into it. But it may well be that it's costly that there has already been the shedding of blood in order to cover them. And it certainly would point forward to a, a greater covering, doesn't it? covering of the righteousness of Jesus Christ in their lives, their need for God to cover them. And we spiritually have that need for God to cover us, to 
cover us spiritually. And he does so in his own in what he has done on our behalf. And the last thing there briefly is the cherubim which uh, are sent to guard the tree of life. Um, that's a difficult one as well. Is that an act of grace? They had eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and it had been a huge disappointment. It was just hugely anticlimactic. And uh, they were in this terrible condition, been under God's judgment. And God banishes them from eating of this tree of life lest they live forever. And may there be grace in that. Because would it have been if they'd taken from that tree, whatever that tree signified or symbolized or whatever physically it meant to eat from it, which they were allowed to eat from before, would it have meant if they'd eaten from it they would have lived forever, but lived forever in a lost condition, away from God? So was it an act of grace that God sent the cherubim to guard it so that they wouldn't, they wouldn't seal themselves into a lost condition, but rather they would recognize that the only way for them to live forever would be for accepting God's redemption and God's salvation ultimately through Jesus Christ. Would they have been locked into despair living like that forever? Would it, in other words, have been a hellish existence? And does it reflect the hellish existence of those who will not come to Christ or who die without Jesus? An eternity of being separated from him. So th- there's, there's gentle movements of grace even in this most solemn of passages and may we remember that and know where we've come from and recognize where we've come from and not as we kind of mentioned this morning not treat sin lightly or Jesus lightly or the cross lightly but that we would give thanks for him and for what he's done and for for it means for us let's bow our heads and pray Father God, we ask and pray that you would help us to understand you. Forgive us, Lord God, when we find no interest in these things. Forgive us when we feel it's tremendously distant from our day-to-day living. But when someone cheats on us, or when someone uh, treats us badly at work, or when we feel the welling up of bitterness or grief uh, at being unjustly dealt with, or when we feel that we've been looked over uh, unwisely or unnecessarily in a promotion, or when uh, people misunderstand our faith, or when we see brutality or murder or death or hurt or pain or horrible words being spoken, and we sit at the graveside of a friend, Lord God, we pray uh, that we would recognize and know your hand and your spirit and your truth speaking to us and that we would uh, seek Lord God uh, to know that this is relevant to us because it speaks of the Redeemer who has come to change our hearts and to enable us to overcome death and the grave and also all that goes with it and to be changed uh, as in uh, and a, a remarkable and uh, glorious change So may we accept Jesus and accept his importance for us in this week in which we've entered.
to change our hearts and our desires and our longings so that they may be centered on life and on hope and on future and uh, that we may not remain under your judgment and far from you and out of Christ. So help us in these things, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.